should be the episode title. That should be the episode title. Hello and welcome to the Benzo Rehab Dungeon Religious Deconstruction uh, 14, I think we decided it was. Yeah. Uh, I am your host, Michael Deebs, joining me as uh, they usually do on uh, the Religious Deconstruction videos is uh, Jacob, friend of the dungeon. Yeah. Former lover of the dungeon, you know, etc. Um, and you wanted to talk today about something that's very important to you, which is uh, your your Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. I believe is that correct? Oh, do I ever? You know, with Easter being last week, you know, just He is risen. He is risen, and you must accept Him and uh, bathe in the cleansing blood of uh, the Lord. But if you bathe too often, that's weird, right? It's not weird. The the frequency is not the issue. It's the the pathological. I'm not clean until I bathe, and and I get weird amounts of shit for the fact that I like to take a shower every day. Yeah, but but the, okay. <laughs> it's to me that you don't see what the fucking sticking point is here. Most people, I think, in the United States probably bathe every day, yeah. but they don't have to fucking say, oh, I need to take a shower every day. You know what I mean? It's the the utterance, the the need to, to verbalize. Um, so uh yeah that's we, we are we are dragging people into a, a very personal debate that i think we don't need to, to really get into um they should they should, they should chime in though I, they, they should they should know awful. that that i'm a guy that bathes is uh most this important is equally as important as the the ketchup debate oh, which i don't know that we've talked Jesus about on there i'm just i'm just delaying the the serious construction of uh yeah whatever like to be uh returned to pure white you, after you, being you wanted to uh talk about how timothy mcveigh did nothing wrong is it was that basically what our premise was no those were your words those were your words i i don't want to i you know uh no and it doesn't have to be about mcveigh specifically but you know i'm reading that i burned through uh, like 300 pages of that book yesterday. It's fascinating. Um, but it is truly a, what I actually did want to talk about was just, you know, alienation and uh, disenfranchisement, specific, you know, specifically among young men. Um, because, you know, obviously, statistically, those are the people who are, uh, going out and doing this kind of thing, uh, like blowing up the kitties or shooting the kitties or what have you. Um, always something with kids. What's that? <laughs> I said it's always something with kids. Always something with kids. You know what? Like, uh, as an expert on uh, not doing illegal shit, I guess my <laughs> advice would be stay the fuck away from kids. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm like, le legally obligated to stay away from children, but... Um... Even if I was, <laughs> your kids stay the fuck away from them. Yeah, go buy yourself a fucking pack of smokes. Don't come back. Damn. You know, that um, sounds familiar. Yeah. Where where did I first hear that one from? Yeah. Yeah, I, was, I was I wasn't reading McVeigh's biography. I was reading your biography. Um, but uh, yeah, so and I mean, part of what's interesting, you know, part of what we, I think we were going to talk about too was you know his uh, tenure in. Uh, 
the uh, armed forces during um, Desert Shield and Desert Storm. Um, Two of the most justified conflicts that have ever happened, by the way. Yeah, exactly. And that was, you know, obviously part of what uh, fueled his um, disdain for the uh, American government. Um, And it's actually, the book is interesting because, I mean, I didn't, I, you know, obviously knew the broad contours of, uh, you know, the Iran-Iraq war, OPEC, uh, and sort of the, you know, again, the broad strokes of, you know, okay, we invaded Iraq after they invaded Kuwait. But I mean, it, one thing it definitely does highlight, and I think is an important kind of, um, especially right now, historical trope uh, to be familiar with is the degree to which the United States relies on and props up strong men and then turns on them. I mean, we did this to Saddam. We gave Saddam weapons as late as 1992. Um, so we did it with Saddam. We did it with um, with Gaddafi in Libya. Um, and uh, I mean, then to a, a more kind of uh, lower intensity extent, we did it with Operation Gladio um, during kind of the Cold War, uh, where we were, you know, arming and funding, um, uh, you know, ex-Nazi uh, military and officers through a lot of the money was was funneled through uh, the Vatican Bank. I, I, I know uh, we kind of want to stay away from uh, current events, but when you say <laughs> funding ex-Nazis, uh, I, I wonder if there's anything right. happening con- contemporaneously that... Uh... Right, well, and that's the point, too, is, you know, I mean, the, you know, Zelensky is a latter-day Saddam or Gaddafi. Uh, not- yeah. Not in terms of policy. I'm not saying that. I well, wish he was a Gaddafi. I wish he was a fucking Gaddafi. Gaddafi was a fucking, you know. He was kind of based. He was, um, he was a legend, but a bit, yeah, he was based. Um, fucking great fashion sense. Uh, Saddam was Saddam was a bastard. I, I I don't feel bad saying about saying that. I mean, I think yeah, you know, Pan Arabism uh, is interesting, and the, you know, if the point have, I always you know, make about situations like this is. <clears throat> Yeah, Saddam sucked. Uh, Gaddafi was probably not the coolest guy ever, but, you know, a little bit more based. Um, But both of them were running functional countries, and then the U.S. got involved, and now you have open-air slavery markets in Libya, and Iraq is a fucking nightmare. So, um, we we didn't make anything better by taking out these bastards. And you could argue that like if you if you look at the mathematics of what these countries have done versus what the United States have done, Obama is a worse person than Saddam was. Yeah, he's a war criminal. Yeah, um, was a war criminal. You know, Bush is a war criminal. Trump, uh, war criminal. Biden, uh, war criminal. But anyways, point being, so you know, uh, the book about McVeigh goes into the kind of the the military undertaking. Um, of uh, Desert Storm, Desert Shield, and Desert Storm, um, and and McVeigh's experience there. He was um, he was part of an experimental uh, program where they um, 
it was called cohort and the goal was to keep uh enlistees together in a squad from enlistment up to deployment um because they were trying to you know experiment with ways to maintain esprit de corps and you know camaraderie and uh battlefield efficiency etc but um he wound up assigned to a bradley tank and uh was the gunner on that and um you know, it's interesting that there's conflicting reports about his, uh, the degree of his zeal for killing um, enemy combatants. Some people say he felt awful about it. Some people say, no, he was a fucking mean bastard and he loved blowing people up. Um, obviously, you know, later, I think we get a little. He turns out to maybe be a fan of blowing people up. (laughs) But, uh, but, and and it's interesting too, and and that's kind of a sticking point throughout the book are the contradictions, um, in part, in part due to, uh, you know, uh, just contradictions in sources, but then also in McVeigh himself, he, you know, in the years of his incarceration, did give um, biographical interviews. There was a biography, an authorized biography written of him, um, and several unauthorized. And then there's, you know, a mountain of um, defense materials uh, that she relies on, the author relies on as well. But I mean, McVeigh was just such such the archetype of the disaffected middle class male um from a, he was from a broken home his mother was um an alcoholic and abandoned the family his father um was um uh both of his parents worked but his father was you know the breadwinner um and uh but was not affectionate did not you know uh provide any sort of emotional uh emotional uh support and um mcveigh was uh he was obsessed with guns because um of his relationship with his grandfather uh and it's one thing that's interesting too i just i didn't know this he mcveigh is from buffalo New York. Yeah. You know, I mean, in my mind, you know, it makes sense. You know, Terry Nichols, Michigan, Michigan's full of fucking wackos, uh, Oklahoma, Utah, all that, like the Western kind of flyover states full of fucking wackos. Um, but uh, McVeigh, very bright, disaffected, loved guns, was obsessed with, obsessed with guns. Um, and what's interesting too is that he was from a young age obsessed with, um, the uh the turner diaries which is a white supremacist uh novel about um i, I, an I think when you say it's a white supremacist novel you're kind of underselling it <laughs> it's a, yeah, yeah, no, it's a full-on neo-nazi uh like yeah no i think that's fair. at um, that point <laughs> yeah it's it's about race war and you know um government authoritarianism the, the zionist occupied government quote-unquote um, and so again, another contradiction around that specifically is the degree to which McVeigh was, um, 
a lifelong racist or whether it was something that emerged and something that the book definitely posits is that it was intensified by the war and seeing, um, well, for one, he, he wasn't anti-Arab. Uh, he, I mean, he was very much just anti-Black. Like he was a, he hated African-Americans. He hated Jews. Um, and the, you know, the, the reasons behind his hatred for African-Americans were, you know, sort of the typical uh, tropes that um, racist whites use, you know, the, they're loud, they're, uh, you know, promiscuous. They, they don't smell good. They, um, yeah, just the usual bullshit. Uh, um, welfare queen sort of shit, right? Right. And, and, and he made the point of specifying <laughs> in an interview that he was a white separatist, not a white supremacist, which is, I would say, you know, it is a distinction. It's not a distinction without a difference. Um, the reason that, but it's a, it's a distinction without a difference in the sense that the goal is the same. Um, right. But I think, well, and the means are the how, same. How do you well. achieve a white ethno state without some level of uh, genocide and or violent uh, well, yeah, removal of, you know. And, and uh, I guess the, you know, McVeigh is sort of the jumping off point for this conversation about, you know, uh, alienated youth, because, uh, you know, I th the, the problem is that there are so many people like him and not every single one is going to do something like what he did. But when you have this sort of captive audience or pool of people like that and the federal government um, and federal law enforcement going out and um, inciting or entrapping these people as they do, as they did with uh, the militia that was going to try and catch, uh, kidnap uh, Whitmer, as right. they do with countless, uh, you know, Muslim young men, um, <clears throat> et cetera. You know, there, it, there was a story that came out recently where somebody was like arrested for like a terrorist plot or something like that. I, I forget exactly what the details were. But um, everyone was confused when the arrest was going down because the people who were like being arrested were like FBI undercover agents, and then the people doing yeah. the arrest were like uh, some some other like the Department of Homeland Security guys. And are you talking about um, it's uh, uh, Taherzadeh and Ali in DC? Yes, They're I think that's what it was. Yeah. That case is wild. I have no fucking clue what's going on there. But, but and, it's, it's and literally it's, the meme where like Spider Man is pointing at Spider Man, and it's like yeah. FBI, well, so CIA. <laughs> like, they were not actually on the payroll. They are. They had a an LLC set up um, for a private security, private contracting business. Um, they claimed to have connections to ISI, which is Pakistani state intelligence. Mm. Um, it, it's a really weird story because I, I've read some of the criminal complaints and the indictments and there's never, you know, there's a conspiracy between these two men, but there's never any like, this is what they were trying to do. I mean, right. again, it's kind of this like 
grandiosity, uh, delusions of grandeur type thing um, that a lot of these types of people uh, suffer from where, you know, they are, their, their egos are so fundamentally wounded that they construct these, you know, monumental fantasies. Um, Motherfuckers that like watched uh, Homeland, that show. And right. then, like, yeah. took it, it took it to be reality in some way, and then made the that their reality. And now <laughs> here we are. Right? Yeah, it's a really weird one. It's, I'm going to be interested to see what happens. I uh, <clears throat> the process, the state is being very aggressive. Um, the judge, at least in the pretrial stuff, is sort of. The judge seems confused from what I've read um, because well, yeah, of, because it's uh, <laughs> it's state entities like behind all of this, really. So it's like, yeah, in the, in the, a bunch of the charging documents have been amended. Um, like there was a one of the affiants later uh, amended a statement regarding what he knew or when he knew it. It's just really fucking weird. I it to me sounds like there, there's something deeper going on. It's not as simple as two guys LARPing as uh, federal agents. There's just, cause they were, they were giving thousands of dollars in, um, in either cash weapons or housing to, to, to federal law enforcement officers. I mean, right. <laughs> there's, there's something, I don't know. But anyways. Yeah. Um, that's, that's besides the point. I'm sorry that I, that I, it's, it's something interesting to, yeah. to track but, but I think this kind of plays back into how somebody like McVeigh happens, right. You know, like, yeah, you, you have somebody who, ostensibly is kind of like uh, indoctrinated through the military which is a federal program um and uh yeah. you know he formulates all these you know uh, a, a lot of guys that i knew when i was in the marines um you know they, they had very anti-government stances even though they were like mm -hmm. trained and fed by the government um right. and you know we, we have and, and I'm not saying being anti-government is like bad necessarily, but but that uh, there, there's there's a troubling way that anti-government rhetoric happens with a lot of veterans, I think, which is where, yeah. you know, yes, I love the state violence, but I don't like it when the state like, uh, I don't know, feeds struggling single mothers or something like that. Um, right. And, and and that's where their point of contention is. And then they they utilize that like. Uh, indoctrinated state violence uh in the capacity of fighting the thing that they don't like about the state which is you know yeah that it does and that's good things every now and then very rarely uh, if we're being honest about it yeah and that, that's kind of a, a another sticking point and something that a case like mcveigh brings into stark relief is the fact that you know, obviously, obviously there's left and right wing anti-state ideologies, but the right is far more equipped and motivated to actually enact these policies so far as the United States goes. Uh, I mean, 
you know, the, the, because, you know, federal law enforcement has publicly stated the risk of right-wing militias, which again, you guys are fucking inciting them. Like they (laughs) are through a number of means. Um, but you know, there's no credible left wing threat to the actual. I, I always think back to uh, to situations like Waco uh, in, in this kind of context, where um, were the Branch Davidians maybe not cool to women and children? Yes, of course, Duh. it's a religious right. cult. Um, but did we fix anything by killing all the women and children? No. Um, right. And and so well, we yeah. What's up? They're not in the. They're not. We freed them from the cult. They're not in the cult anymore. Yeah, I mean, technically speaking, they're, they're not uh, oppressed. <laughs> We're fucking gassed to death and burned by the FBI. Yeah, no, it's sickening. And I mean, obviously, you know, Waco and Ruby Ridge are huge flashpoints for these groups. Well, that, um, that, that, that's what kind of like inspires this kind of person is is the the very real actual right understanding that this sort of thing can happen to you is just like yeah maybe right. maybe you have a couple of problematic beliefs um may, maybe you know your your worldview isn't like coherent or good or anything like that but like how many people are you actually hurting versus the state comes in and now murders everyone like uh yeah it 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 it, 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 it these sort of separatist groups, whether it's on the level of a cult compound or a family, it's important to note, and I actually is in keeping with the original purpose of the Sunday episodes, you know, that, that, that these groups are inextricable, their ideology is inextricable from um, American fundamentalists, evangelicalism, um, Elohim City, which was the white, uh, the neo-Nazi compound that um, McVeigh was associated with. I, th- I think it was Elohim City. It might have been a different compound. Was a breakaway from a Baptist congregation, mm. um, a fundamentalist Baptist congregation. You know, and and I've I, I've you know I, I've talked about it on here before, but you know I have a long-standing fascination with evangelicalism. Um, for the reason that it poses such a, it's such a huge voting block. It's, um, it has institutional uh, connections that are, you know, more, you know, straight laced, you know, whether it's the Grams or, uh, you know, the prayer breakfast or, uh, you know, um, well, well, that's what's so interesting when when you get somebody like McVeigh who who's like uh, got this idea that there's like a a Zionist conspiracy in in the government, right? Like there is right. actually a Zionist conspiracy in the government, um, but it, it's not the way that that they're interpreting it. it <laughs> this Zionist conspiracy is this weird, like over hyper religious uh, uh, Zionism. <laughs> And the, the solution to that problem isn't to go out and kill all the Jews. Right. Because that, because there- most of the most of the Zionists are guys like Joe Biden. Biden is a Zionist. He he's right. like a loudly right. proclaimed Zionist that says right. things like, 
if Israel didn't exist, we would have to create a new Israel or something like that. You know, yeah. he, he's literally I mean, said that, you know, like, like these, these are Zionists and, 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 and Zionism is weird because Zionism is, is actually incredibly anti-Semitic, which I, I think I've talked about once or twice, uh, because, because Zionism is a Christian belief. And, uh, this, this Christian belief is kind of hinged on, uh, well, there's a, all the I mean, Jews being obliterated at some point, and so when you're a Zionist, you you want the Jews to be obliterated because that's how you yeah. bring about the the times of revelation. That's it. I mean, that's the evangelical Zionism. I mean, Zionism itself is, as an ideology is endemic to Ashkenazi Jews. Um, yeah, no, the, for sure. But uh, yeah, so there there's that tension as well where the through line between <laughs> the through line between these militia groups who hate Jews and the Zog is evangelical Christianity, um, which evangelical Christianity just kind of forms the subconscious or unconscious of these people. Um, and I, you know, I don't mean to say that all evangelicals are white supremacists, but I do think American evangelicalism historically and ideologically is a white supremacist. It's a a situation where you're propping something up, right? And and so, like, you might not individually believe as somebody who is evangelical that, you know, other races are lesser to you or whatever but the the system that you're propping up has historically and you know in the modern age been white supremacist so yeah um but and and this this is how a lot of systemic (laughs) structures sort of work uh when they when they have this kind of like racial bias or anything like that is you you yourself might not be racist but um if you like support the cops um hate to break it to you but the cops are a racist structure uh yeah and in that respect evangelicalism i think is pretty similar to or it makes sense rather that that um Mormonism was, was, you know, an American phenomenon and that it spun off from American Protestantism because the racial vision of Mormonism is what is inherently and explicitly white supremacist. And I think it simply kind of uh, codifies the unstated racial vision of um, American Protestantism and, you know, the city on the hill, that kind of Protestants well, not Protestants specifically, I mean, because the Catholic Church did her this shit too, but, you know, (laughs) what it fundamentally gets back to is the simple fact that the American experiment, the colonization of the Americas, was and remains a white supremacist endeavor. And, you know, it's funny that that proposition has now become this kind of uh, uh, landmine kind of, you know, controversial thing to say because of, you know, lunatics like Nicole Hannah-Jones 
with the 1619 Project, falsifying history, um, rewriting, literally rewriting history, and then there's the right-wing backlash to it. it. It should be simple enough to just say, yes, the it's it is a white supremacist, racist uh, undertaking, and because that in itself is a strong claim, but it's a, a defensible, supportable claim. Well, yeah, and and you know, just getting more specific than that, and and trying to make things overly granular, it is where the the methodological problems come in with that anyways i don't want to go off on fucking nicole anna jones because she's not worth the breath but uh. <laughs> no but but uh really quickly I, w- I would like to say you know if if you're curious about the 1619 project and and why like yeah it, it's going the right direction but it's like falsifying a bunch of shit um l- listen to people like adolf reed um and and their critique of the 1619 project um yeah. read a, i i think black reconstruction in america by w.e.b du bois was the, like one of the best books i've ever fucking read um read that and and like you, you, you listen to it on tape yeah yeah i i listened to it on audiobook uh <laughs> but um you know, look into things like that, and and you don't need something like the sixteen nineteen project, which, and 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 the 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 shitty thing that that something like this is doing, is, yes, it's correctly saying uh, America is a racist country, and then it's making shit up, and now you've given an argument to the weirdo white supremacists. You can be like, well, this historical fact or or this historical claim isn't true, and and you're mm-hmm. undermining your own like set of beliefs by making shit up at that point and you're giving the right right, this ability to say no you're wrong and now now we've got ourselves mired in this like fucking quag quagmire of, of of dumb bullshit where you know the right actually has a point in saying that this isn't true and they're using that against this project which is saying uh you know america is racist which is true but it's using falsified uh you know documentation of it um the real actual history of america will prove itself to be racist right. <laughs> you don't need to make shit up no yeah um and and that, i mean that's kind of the problem with I, I have a i have a personal policy of you know, if I'm going to read a history book, it's going to be written by a historian, not a journalist, yeah. because journalists don't know how to do history. History is a social science. It, it, it's a, it's more akin to sociology than it is to uh, literary studies or philosophy. Um, but um, and I, I think to kind of reconnect it back to this theme of disenfranchisement, part of the problem with projects like that is that it inculcates guilt in the hegemonic members of the hegemonic group. And, you know, they're part of the problem is that um, there's a fundamental difference between guilt and responsibility. Um, Well, yeah, I think there's a difference between guilt and responsibility. Um, where I think it's reasonable to feel guilty or feel 
culpable, but it, that's the that's the backstop. Uh, it's not responsibility to ascribe responsibility for historical errors um, to a contemporary uh, to contemporary individuals is not productive. It's misguided. Uh, and also, I mean, frankly, you know, I, well, that's, it's, that's poking, why... <laughs> it's poking the bear, too, because if you think about it, the argument is basically we live in a white supremacist society. Uh, let's make whites feel bad about themselves. Well, let's look at numbers and let's look at gun ownership. Who has all who outnumbers you and who has the fucking guns? You know, you're going to you're going to. And that's what and that is fundamentally the issue. Like I said earlier, you know, the right wing is far more capable of actually perpetrating acts of violence, um, political violence, terrorism than the left. Um, and, and it's counterproductive and uh, inflammatory uh, to to uh, propagate, you know, uh, cultural artifacts that that incite that sense of um, sense of uh, woundedness among the uh, a hegemonic group who is not wounded cannot be wounded. They're structurally insulated, economically insulated, culturally insulated, numerically insulated from actually being wounded um, on a on a group level. It's fine if you want to fucking if you want to bitch and moan um, about um, individual instances where you know you're aggrieved on account of whatever it is, affirmative action or whatever. But you know the the notion that that whiteness can be threatened uh, or or dethroned as the underlying st- uh, structure is just it's it's ludicrous. It's ludicrous, but it is emotionally salient to these people, and that's the issue. And is that they feel so strongly. A, a point that I'd like to bring up, and and going back into Black Reconstruction, why I think it's such an important book is um, <clears throat> this is how the South really act, like like actually became racist. Is yes, there were there was a structure of racism uh, with slavery, and and the power structure was that whites were dominant over the black uh, people that they had uh, shipped over here to enslave um but but the the like real long-term win of racism is that it pitted the extremely impoverished black folks who are now freedmen against the extremely impoverished uh uh, white uh southerners and instead of being able to find some kind of identity with each other what it did is it it, it uh, you know, and and there were very uh, powerful political players involved with this, but it but you know there there was a sense that oh now that the black slave is free he's your competitor and you had to fight your competitor now, and 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 this is exactly the same sort of thing that that you're kind of talking about where, you know, guilt tripping some poor white person who's never actually had anything good in their lives. 
and and you know like just explicitly calling them a racist outright without them even knowing like why they're being called a racist or like uh having that understanding of of the history or whatever you you're you're not consolidating any kind of uh power against the elite or anything mm-hmm. like that you're you're making enemies with people who should actually be your your allies yeah and it, i mean it's re re reasserting reinscribing that power structure itself uh, power is the the structure of uh you know racial tension um and i think too you know it part of the problem again you know t- to state ad nauseum at this point that there's no left-wing threat to power in this country you know we are unique uh, in terms of um one second we are unique um you know uh, in terms of colonial projects that uh we settled this we being whites settled this country through ethnic cleansing and genocide and then maintained that um possession through enslavement whereas um you know european colonial powers were were and are you know racially homogenous um and so that kind of that necessary splitting of the underclass or, or rather that splitting of the underclass was never necessary uh the the sort of cultural warfare of um racism um and that's why i mean that's part of the part of the reason why that there was more fertile ground ideologically for um you know concerted left politics whether socialist or anarchist or or whatever in in mainland continental europe um and uh i mean i think you know uh, I just, you know, McVeigh is such an exemplary figure of what happens when someone is inculcated, where there, where there is that guilt inculcated in that person, where they're, you know, um, they're placed in and participate in a racist project like American foreign policy (laughs) and furthermore uh, hone their skills with weapons um, and and learning how to pursue warfare and conduct warfare. Um, It's it is difficult to see a trajectory in that person's life that does not, whether it's McVeigh or someone else, because there's plenty of other people like him who don't do what he did, but it's difficult to see a trajectory that does not wind up at that person becoming um, either becoming a racist or becoming a more virulent racist, a more committed racist. Um, And I you know, there's plenty of plenty of indoctrination goals of uh, that that you know the government pursues through uh, the armed forces and its soldiers. Um, 
but I don't. I think I don't know. I don't know. And maybe you could correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't know that it's trying to uh, maintain or incite racial division on the domestic in the domestic sphere necessarily. I, I would agree with that. It, it, it doesn't mean to be uh, racist in a domestic sense, but you know, something, something that I kind of observed when, when I was enlisted and, and, you know, around groups of people who were engaging in active warfare. Um, I'm fortunate enough that I never had to shoot anybody. And, um, what I noticed in people who did end up having to shoot someone is you do one of two things. You either, um, feel this immense guilt that you can never escape from, or you double down on whatever enforced that, that ability to kill someone. And when it, when it ends up happening, if, if you're the, the person that shot someone, um, you know, like I said, you either feel horrified by what you did and you like completely deconstruct everything and you, you, uh, you end up as like, a you know, someone who abhors violence or, you double down on that belief and you go, well, you know, I was justified in shooting this person. And so now I have to like, um, justify all of the things that led to me shooting this person. And this goes into, you know, like, well, you know, uh, middle Eastern people are, are violent and I was just putting a dog down sort of stuff. Um, and, and, you know, when when you do that and, and you, you learn to basically view another human being as, as less than you inherently in some way, which is the necessary thing that you have to do in order to, like, not feel this immense guilt. Um, yeah, it, it creates this this uh, inherent, like, predisposition to being violent towards other human beings. Yeah. And then one thing, I guess I, in a situation like that, it seems to me that the racism is almost ancillary or prosthetic to. Absolutely. Yeah. That dehumanization because, you know, that in the sense that, you know, fully dehumanizing someone is really difficult. You need a, that's the mechanism or, but the the racism or homophobia, anti-Semitism, whatever, is the sort of the um, if the dehumanization is the vehicle, the the bigotry is like the fuel that you're putting in it to right. to yeah. get it. Um, and I think you know, and that's kind of what is interesting too about terrorism that strikes at a member's in group, um, whether it's suicide bombers in the Middle East or someone like McVeigh, um, you know, it, it speaks to that, um, to the fervor and zealotry of the anti-establishment um, viewpoint. And, and it's, it's a feeling it's not a, you know, it's, it's, I think it does a discredit 
to, and it prevents a full understanding of it to simply say, well, this person's an ideologue. You know, there is an emotional landscape um, that these people are enmeshed in that we are not that allows them to do something like this. You know, McVeigh spent uh, the time between his discharge and the bombing um, going around the country, attending gun shows and building relationships with uh, white supremacists of all stripes um, in the same way, you know, the emotional landscape of a suicide bomber, someone who bombs a mosque is that they are so, and I guess what I would say is like the fundamental thing here is emasculation. These people feel emasculated. Um, it, it, again, because it, it's men who do this stuff. Uh, it, it's a, it is a fundamentally male problem. Um, and I, you know, you know, American foreign policy has, you know, cut off, has cut autonomy off at the knees all across the world, wherever we've gone in and, you know, pursued uh, nation building or whatever the fuck. Um, and in the same way, you know, there's the demographic changes in this country, by which I don't mean particularly um, ethnic or racial, but they are active here. It's more in the, I think the fundamental problem is, is changes in family structure and community. Um, and I think you and I have talked about this a little bit, you know, like, so it's difficult to, I think it's difficult to state this in a way that doesn't sound anti women's lib, but you know, the, the degree to which women participate in the labor force has had a correlation with the degree to which men, a positive correlation to the degree to which men, I think, feel incited to do shit like this. Um, and obviously, you know, as with saying, as we said earlier with, you know, the fact that there is a, a, a Zionist lobby that's powerful in this country, you know, the solution isn't to kill the Jews. Um, similarly, the solution to this problem isn't to bar women from working, but, you know, there is a, 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 a cultural lag between, um, there's a cultural lag between equitable participation in the labor force and the sort of, uh, emotional ease or peace with that, um, among certain parts of the male populace. And, you know, again, it's up to that person to get good with it. Uh, well, you well know. I think, you know, what, what we're seeing is, is in some ways a little bit analogous to what I was describing with the, uh, the newly freed slaves and the poor whites, mm. right? Like, um, now, women have entered the workforce and there's nothing necessarily wrong with that except that we are all compelled to be in the workforce mm -hmm. um survival depends on being in the workforce and and now um you know women being uh, uh, capable laborers is a threat to the uh the yeah. traditional male breadwinner um 
not in reality, but only because we live in this construct of having to to work in order to earn the the living that you provide right. to a family, and and so um, be, because it's all hinged on this premise of uh, you know if you don't work, your family's going to die. Um, now women are a threat to to the male uh, breadwinner because yeah. because of that, right? Like. And and we we could all work together, and I I know many women who are amazing uh, at their jobs and and that sort of thing, um, but but it's just a simple fact that that we are compelled to, uh, compete in this way, and so now that yeah. that competition has has changed, and and this this creates a, a resentment uh, between between these groups. Right. And I think, you know, it, it reminds me of, uh, there's a line in, I think, uh, it would be an anti-Oedipus, not a thousand plateaus where D and G say that something to the effect that, you know, capitalism is endly, endlessly capable of adding axioms, um, by which they mean essentially what their understanding of capitalism is that it, it does not have an inherent cultural substrate or uh, not substrate exactly, but it doesn't have, it does not have a necessary cultural content, um, you know, in the sense that it, it just does whatever is profitable. Right. It, 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 yeah. The, the point of capital is capital accumulation. Uh, so if, you know, uh, a la if ending slavery or uh, liberalizing the labor market is a way to do that, that's, that's what they mean by adding axioms, you know, um, or even something um, not necessarily cultural, but more kind of mechanical or economic, like um, greenwashing, you know? And, and yeah. I mean, it just the, the degree, something like Tesla, you know, which is a nominally, um, it, you know, the purpose is supposedly to save the world somehow, but you're saving the world by, you know, uh, mining, you know, taking conflict minerals and inciting ethnic conflict in areas where these minerals are found. Um, I saw, just an aside, I think I just saw recently that Mexico was uh, nationalizing its uh, lithium reserves. Uh, which Damn, is, we're about to see Joe Biden go to war with Mexico, I think. <laughs> yeah, well, they got oil too, so why not? Yeah. Um, but, um, yeah, you know, it, it, so... So again, there's like a, this lag is something that that's the, the lag is the issue where there is this mechanical addition, addition of a, of a, of a new operation that it takes time for individuals to catch up to, uh, emotionally cognitively politically um well and and the reason that it takes them time to catch up to that is because it threatens their immediate survival right like 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 i was saying with with the uh you know the freedmen as as a new source of labor um yeah. whites in the south uh, were were 
resistant to this because it was threatening their ability to make money and and just like you know all right so mexico was going to nationalize its lithium industry this threatens a lot of jobs in america and and or not america uh the u.s because mexico is in the americas um wow really just you just checked your privilege so yeah uh but but um you know this this threatens jobs in the u.s and and it it's not recognized the problem is that you have to have a job in order to to survive it's uh yeah. it's that your job is threatened because that's that's your survival yeah and you know it's funny um i'm just uh, mr theory today it reminds me of uh Marcuse's One Dimensional Man, which is a really fucking fascinating book uh, for a variety of reasons. The content itself is very interesting and it, it's such a product of its time um, and kind of presaged things to come in, the, in its imminent wake. Um, but, you know, Marcuse is a proponent of this notion that. Um, there are, uh, you, it, it's a it's a classical sense of Greek uh, uh, hierarchical kind of vision of society where there's you know the, there's the the proles and then there's uh, there's the philosopher kings and I think you know the modern play out of that is the so-called professional managerial class uh you know of people like said we were going to talk about it people like nicole hannah jones or anyone who fucking writes for the new york times or the new yorker or npr or works in hollywood or works in dc or whatever um and you know it regardless of that individual's background, they could be someone who um, grew up in, you know, downstate Illinois or, you know, Missouri or Mississippi or Arkansas or any number of the flyover states. But, you know, there's a rewiring that happens when you move into those sort of ideological spaces. Um, And I don't, there's no way for those people to remain true to or bear witness to uh, what we're talking about, which is that the necessity of uh, class solidarity, because the the spaces that those people are, are, are working in are the, it's a cottage industry of fomenting division. That is their purpose is to, is to divide, to incite. Um, and it's, it's, uh, you know, on one level, there's, it would be a lot of cognitive dissonance to do that and then go home and be like, man, I really, you know, rah, 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 uh, you know, you know, fucking singing the international as they, you know, shower or whatever the fuck. Um, there's that and then there's also just those people get flushed out people who do remain true or who are ideologues do get they get drummed out um in the way that the military drums people out uh 
in uh, the early stages of enlistment in, in boot camp. Um, and it's also worth mentioning that the pool that those people are drawn from is, again, while it's certainly true that a working class person could break into it, it's drawn from the middle class and it's drawn from a, a, a group of people who are already predisposed to, um, you know, by virtue of their lived experience to not having insight into um, the grievances of either racial minorities or um, the poor, whether white or black or whatever. Um, and the, what winds up happening is this sort of, um, you know, paternalistic racism. It's, it's a mix of, you know, the noble savage of, you know, picking of, the, of these white PMC types, picking a few good ones to prop up, or uh, it is, and this is oftentimes, I think, and I think this is really what's being fomented right now is the bigotry of low expectations, you know, meaning that uh, it's sort of um, saying yes to the most racist understandings of minorities and saying, well, they've risen to their, they've risen to their station. You know, that's where they, that's where they top out. Um, and, and, and you see this in, in a lot of the popular rhetoric, you know, where you, you get somebody who's, uh, almost certainly a racist. Right. And, and they're saying things like, why are black people complaining? Look at, uh, you know, famous NBA star who has millions of dollars. Everybody could do that, right? Um, we, we've given them this opportunity. Why are they complaining about, you know, being poor? Um, right. Or, or the types that say, well, we had a black president. Exactly. Why right. Yeah. Like, like we... Uh we've given them this capability so why are they complaining and and like it's it's looking at the exception and not the rule yeah and i think too that that's one side of that coin because then at the same time there's people like uh, um i don't know who do i want to pick on there's people like you know jen Saki, uh, who undoubtedly i don't clean. think would would espouse that kind of rhetoric of well, why are they so complaining? We had Barack Obama, who she worked for, um, you know, the, but she is, she's, I, so the, the, on the one side, there is that, there is that uh, exemplary racism. There's the, well, there's, you know, you know, there's the Steph Curry's, the Oprah's, the Obama's of the world. But then the other side is the, the NIMBY side, you know, who, um, are nominally uh, uh, not racist, but also they wouldn't want to live next to a black family um, or they wouldn't want their child to date a, a, a minority um, because their vision of the world and their understanding of themselves, you know, it's, it's a genteel racism. It's not, um, they're not ever, their whole, their linens don't have holes in them. They're not going to go out burning crosses, but it's a, it's a, it's a liberal racial separatism. 
Um, it's, it's, and I think those people in the sense that those people are actually, you know, insofar as the right wing has a more military or militant capacity um, to work against the state, the sort of liberal cultural forces uh, are more institutionally capable of maintaining it. Um, and it's kind of like, I mean, it, I think the, your mentioning of uh, Black Reconstruction is really apropos there too, because it's, again, it's a matter of the PMC and these sort of cultural laborers or workers who uh, are producing the kind of, uh, they're the ones who are setting the Overton window and they're the ones who, you know, don't interact with poor whites. They certainly don't interact with minorities um, unless they're sort of these exemplary uh, types and even then it's, you know, at arm's length. Um, so, yeah, I think, I don't know. I, I guess uh, to me, it seems like obviously, you know, uh, acts of political violence have increased drastically over the past 25 years, even. Um, and I think the right wing is going to keep, they're going to get more and more ornery and hostile as things go on. I mean, because, you know, they've got the guns, they've got the know-how. There is real demographic change happening. It's not by any means uh, the the whatever it's, what is it, the Great Replacement or whatever? Right, yeah. White genocide, Great Replacement, et cetera. Not happening won't ever happen, but, you know, there's, it's the nature of things to change and uh well well i think the other thing to mention is e- even if a great replacement quote unquote does happen uh, that that's essentialist belief that doesn't matter right like yeah oh no we're all going to be tan right who cares? like who cares? <laughs> right. um yeah no i think it, and that's but again, that speaks to the sort of emotional importance of, uh, you know, the fact that the fact to me that that someone's whiteness could give them a sense of meaning is just so. I understand it, but at the same time, and I understand it in the like anthropological, sociological sense. I don't. Yeah, you, I don't, you don't personally I believe it. <laughs> it's like what, like it, it's just it's silly, and it. But I frankly, I have, I don't. It's it's oftentimes difficult for me to have sympathy or for those people because it's so ludicrous. Even though that you know, it, you know, it, it's unfortunate that that becomes the kind of uh, turning point for those people around which their understanding of the world uh, revolves. Um, But uh, yeah, I mean, I just, I don't, I don't see things getting better. I think that's fair. I I, I try to avoid being a a pessimist, but 
at the same time, I I think what 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 I see is a trajectory that um we're on, and yeah. not a whole lot of people are like recognizing this trajectory, and because not a whole lot of people are recognizing this trajectory, we're just like uh fucked. I mean. Yeah. Joe Biden is our president right now, and if if that doesn't make you feel bad inside, uh, <laughs> you're, yeah, you're you're missing a lot of uh, cues. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I I would agree with that, and I think you know, uh, the statistics about his uh, the way people feel about him is telling, and I think there's going to be a red wave. Uh, at midterms, I, oh, without I, a doubt, I don't, I don't know. I think it remains to be seen, or at least I don't yet have an indication in my mind of what letter the next president will have next to their name. I think it could go either way. I don't know. I mean, the problem is, I mean, the fucking, and I, I hate talking about mainstream politics, but like. The Republicans are just so fucking nuts now, man. Like Marjorie Taylor Greene, Madison Cawthorn. Well, that's, and- that's why I don't spend very much time, you know, on on this. Uh, yeah. And and the main podcast, I don't spend a whole lot of time talking about Republicans because if you think that Republicans are okay right. or like, um, oh. like not obviously, uh. uh fucking deranged Stupid. right now like you're you're, yeah. you're so far gone that i can't help you but yeah, you know no, the I, thing that i'd like to talk about is is the, the the kind of insidious aspects of the democratic party because right. the democrats have this face that they put on um the party of the people yeah where 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 they they have this this uh more you know uh uh not necessarily popularist but like more um i don't know gentle i guess uh a way of approaching politics where um you know they they, they'll say that they want to do good things but like ah gee we just can't make it happen sort of stuff um and and that's what you know biden kind of ran on was uh I'm, i'm gonna do good things and then he gets into office and he doesn't do any good things. And this, this makes people, um, I, I think predisposed to the idea of like, well, fuck it. Let's just get some asshole in there. That'll fuck things up. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's kind of an accelerationist, uh, position yeah. that people wind up being kind of painted it, into the it, It's frustration with the system that dominates their lives. And, people are either given the choice of oh maybe this person isn't lying this time and they'll do something good or they'll yeah. try to do something good or destroy the whole fucking thing let's burn it all down and it's worth mentioning too this is purely anecdotal but i i don't think it's uh any big secret but i mean the absolute disdain that the democratic um, power core has for black voters is just disgusting and they take them for granted and they, you know, it's a carrot and a stick. Um, I mean, I, I knew an attorney, uh, 
um, in the place where I live, which I'm not going to say, but uh, it's a blue, blue, very, very blue city um, that historically is. Yeah, it's just corrupt Democrats. Um, but th- this attorney who I knew was African-American um, and was trying to arrange a fundraiser. Um, he was he was the head of some sort of black men's society or organization or something and um, was trying to arrange a fundraiser for a white candidate. Um, I think for the state legislature and uh, basically kept getting dicked around by this candidate uh, who was a white man getting dicked around by this candidate's uh, staff and they wouldn't, you know, commit. And finally this attorney who I knew basically said, well, like, you know, I'm trying to, you know, help out and I'm getting frustrated. And, And this, this candidate staff, I think, pretty much explicitly said to him, well, what are you going to do, vote Republican? And that's and that is exactly what he did. He switched. I mean, uh, we we don't he, even have to, you know, go go to that granular level of local politics. You you had Joe Biden himself talking to Charlemagne the God on The Breakfast Club saying, if you don't vote for me, you're not black. <laughs> right? Wait. Yeah. 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 Which is... Uh, yeah, which is something. Uh, <laughs> which, which, I mean, which just speaks to to how arrogant the Democrats are. Where you know the 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 position is either vote for a Republican who is most assuredly trying to bring back slavery, or right. vote for us. We're not going to do anything for you, but you know, we're not going to yeah. try to bring back slavery necessarily. Lots of arguments to be made about how slavery still exists today. There's um there's a really great scholar I think at Georgetown. Um, um I believe his name is Olafumi Taiwo. Um, who and he's a scholar of like black politics and culture. Um, and trying to remember, I I listened to him on a podcast several years ago. And, it, and he was, was struck by how well spoken he was. <laughs> yeah, was wow. Um, no. Uh, it, but it was it was in the lead up to the 2020 election. And he was talking about precisely this issue that, you know. Um, and he was talking to about. I, I think he was a Bernie guy um, and he was talking about, you know, Bernie's the controversy that are, uh, surrounded Bernie's statement that um, Open Borders was a Koch brothers uh, wet dream or whatever. I, he didn't say wet dream, obviously, but whatever it was that he said, um, which is accurate because Open Borders depress labor costs um, and, again, pit uh, to sectors of labor against each other right because um, you you have a, a workforce that that is indentured uh which is what open borders do and, yeah. and it doesn't have to be that way but i think they're you know i got i've got problems with bernie's uh world politics 
but I think he's correct in saying that open borders are a Koch brothers wet dream because how things exist now, open borders mm-hmm. allow indentured servants to come across the border and then essentially be enslaved for slave right. wages. And this uh, creates um, the same problem that we had uh, after slaves were freed, which is that now they're competitors in the workforce um, for people who would legally be entitled to a minimum wage. Um, Right. But I mean, I mean, that minimum wage is already starvation wages anyway. So so, yeah, it's a. there's also maybe a lesson to be learned in something like the grapes of wrath uh, uh here you know like steinbeck was an op <laughs> yeah <laughs> was cia yeah um actually like unironically yeah he was cia damn uh, i didn't know that yeah. i like some yeah, of his books uh, does that make me I an op? I, I love steinbeck um yeah. but he was yeah he was I don't think he was an intelligence officer per se, but he was someone who uh, worked at the behest of the CIA. Um, oh my God. And, yeah. Um, but yeah, I, uh, you know, it's a matter of uh, keeping your head up for the future. <laughs> Because it's like, I, I just, I, I don't know. I don't really believe that. I mean, I think, you know. No, uh, I, I'm, I'm not saying I agree with, like, the fundamental, like, m- m- message of the Grapes of Wrath. It's just the, uh, the the entire, like, labor market struggle that happens in the Grapes of Wrath. Yeah. And how somebody's always going to be willing to work for less because they have absolutely nothing, you know? Because, yeah, because the choice, it's an ultimatum. You yeah. Know, it's starvation and death or die or work for 10 cents a day <laughs> right and that's the free market baby that's yep. why this country this country on earth god bless america yeah i think you know? uh, i think that's that's maybe uh where we where we should cut this off just god bless america it's doing great um no problems no problems. No, no historical uh, issues that are going to uh, deeply impact our uh, current life. Yeah, there's no, there's no uh, widening rift in our society that is going to <laughs> yeah. not struggle. I mean, there's no, no we're, threat. We're not going to see uh, intensifying uh, acts of terrorism that then justify state power. Uh, right. But but don't ever question how the state is uh, uh, conducting itself. Um, yeah, the United States is a lot like uh, Ukraine in the sense that there are no Nazis here. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> very cool. There's no right wing military threat in this yeah. country. Well, good. Glad we got that sorted out. Um, thanks as always for joining. Yeah. Uh, do I do the sign off? No, I don't do the sign off on this shit. I don't love you. Don't take your medicine. Fuck you. Um, have a have a have a wonderful, blessed day, everybody. Yeah, it's the day of the Lord. Sunday. <laughs> you went to church, fuckers. Shit. Uh...